With 80 plus episodes in the vault and more than $3 million in total compensation increases received by the Secrets Village, KP and PR are still dropping jewels. Secrets continues to validate that you are not crazy with the challenges faced in trying to reach and exceed your career aspirations. A listener describes Secrets as helping to pinpoint areas I need to develop in conversations I never knew I needed to hear. And season five will definitely not disappoint as they continue to deliver secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to increase your market value by building generational wealth. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have paid their dues to reach the top of corporate America, and they want to share their stories with you to transform your journey. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to season five. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Secrets. Ricky, what's going on today, my brother? Oh, man. Outside of being caught in this heat wave out here, man, I've just been really thinking about the evolution of Secrets. And since we've started Secrets, man, we've talked ad nauseum about how education is one of the keys to generational wealth for marginalized people, right? And we yeah. always think about like, damn, if we would have known then what we know now, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like we would have been dangerous. But one quandary that many Black people face when deciding on colleges, whether or not to attend an HBCU, and for some of our other listeners, our new listeners, HBCU is Historically Black College and University. You and I have witnessed firsthand how qualified candidates have been dismissed out the gate, basically, just because they went to an HBCU versus a more well-known PWI or predominantly white institution. Yeah, that, I totally agree with you. And that, it was a big consideration for me, as, as everyone in my family before me had gone to an HBCU until I made the decision to veer off course and attend Virginia Tech for my undergrad. And, you know, and I struggled with my college search initially because mm-hmm. I saw firsthand the benefits of HBCU, how they created confident, hugely self-aware Black leaders who were just in it, in it to win it, right? Mm-hmm. But I also saw the data, on the other hand, for better or for worse, that sometimes career opportunities for Black folk who attended predominantly white institutions, they were getting better opportunities or better pay or had a faster career track in some instances. So it was just that quandary, as we talked about also, that you were just talking about. And of course, my family supported everything I did and what I came up with. But I still wonder to this day whether or not I missed out on some life-defining experience by not stepping into an HBCU. Yeah, you know, it's crazy because I think about before I ended up getting the uh, football scholarship, all of that type of stuff, man, I was weeks away, weeks away from either going to Grambling or Southern, right? I mean, because you talk about family members going there and whatnot, and stuff just happens the way that it happens. But I hear you. It just makes me think. You and I have made similar choices, especially, you know, as it relates to school. And I was obviously being recruited by a bunch of schools to be able to play football and to run track. But I wondered if like part of me, and you know, it's like, this is my third eye being yeah. on all the time, right? Like I can't help, but this conspiracy thing kind of go off in my head sometimes. But I was wondering if the school really cared about my education or that they just want me to help win football games and the sale tickets. Then once I was done with that, were they going to kind of like put me out to pasture? We talked about 
trying to get classes. And they're like, ah, you can't take that during the football season, you know, because again, ultimately those grades mean that the school may not get as many scholarships or they may be on academic probation. So again, there is some truth to like what was bothering me. So today's Secrets Village, we're building up to something great here. We will talk with Dr. Derek Gilmore from Stillman College today. He's going to talk to us about the HBCU experience. So KP, why don't you introduce Dr. Gilmore to our listeners and put some stank on it, Keith. Like put some respect <laughs> on his brother's name. Put some respect on his name. There Keith. you go. You know how I like to do introductions. It's always fun <laughs> for me. <laughs> so Dr. Derek Gilmore serves as the executive vice president at Stillman College, which is located in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And before his appointment at Stillman in 2020, he served as the deputy provost at Kentucky State University, and he was also a member of the Board of Regents. Dr. Gilmore has nearly two decades of experience in higher education, including stints at Alabama A&M University and Albany State University. He serves on the Chamber of Commerce of West Alabama Council of Innovation and Technology, the Board of Arts and Autism, and he's heavily, heavily involved with the Shelby County NAACP. And additionally, he's a member of the Executive Committee of the Southern Regional Education Board with his Office of Post-Secondary Education focused on historically Black colleges and universities and other minority-serving institutions. And Dr. Gilmore is driven by his mission to be an advocate for increasing the capacities of HBCUs to support the development and preparation of socially conscious leaders that are going to be hitting that workforce soon. He has a doctorate in adult and higher education from Moorhead State University, and he's a proud alum of Albany State, where he earned both his MS and BS degrees. And Ricky, this is for you. He's a member of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, which my dad and my brother are also members of. <laughs> I didn't go that route, but thank you too. <laughs> Man, that's the introduction. I tell you, thank you, sir. Uh, yeah. It is absolutely great to be with you gentlemen this afternoon. And uh, I tell you, I, I don't know if I should pay you for that type of introduction, but you definitely, as Ricky said, you definitely put some stank on it. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> but look, Dr. Gilmore, we are just extremely proud to be able to welcome you to the show today. We are just happy to be able to break bread with you today because we are going to deliver some hot fire for our guests today. And to be specific, in this episode, Secrets Village, we're going to talk with Derek about his story and his career journey. We'll also delve into what an HBCU is and what an HBCU has to offer and why they are critically important for developing Black leaders. We'll provide some receipts on HBCUs, and I know y'all love those receipts. And then we'll close out with a double dose of secrets from Derek on how to apply to become an HBCU student or how to support HBCUs, as well as what corporate America can do to better support HBCU students and graduates. Yeah, so this is going to be a good one today. And I think it's going to be an education for a lot of our listeners out here about HBCUs. So, Derek, we always like to start our interviews out by giving our Secrets listeners some insight on who they're talking to. Just go under the hood a little bit, talk a little bit about how you grew up, talk a little bit about your upbringing and your career journey a little bit. So why don't you mind just kicking it off? I mean, I, I read the Sterling intro bio, but who really is Derek Gilmore? Oh, man. Thank you again. Thank you guys for having me. And I'm so appreciative of the work and efforts you're putting forward 
And I did have an opportunity to listen to some of your podcasts. And I'm really proud of the work that you gentlemen are doing and sharing information that is ensuring the next generation of young people out have every bit of knowledge and information they need to be a catalyst and support whatever they envision their future at. So thank you, gentlemen, for that work. Now, a little bit about me. Uh, the, actually, I grew up in central Alabama, in actually the geographic center of the state of Alabama, in a place called Montevallo, which means actually a hill within a valley. So very interesting. So I thought the listeners might want to know that. But grew up in central Alabama in a place called Montevallo, and it actually happens to be the bottom of the Appalachian Trail and actually serves as, in the state of Alabama, the crown, if you will, of the Black Belt. So for me, it was a very interesting dynamic growing up in that area where to the north, just 20 miles north of that, you had Birmingham, which was uh, very urban. And then, of course, as you look down to the southern counties, very rural. But for me personally, I grew up as a PK. Keith, do you know what I'm talking about? You know what a PK is? Well, let me help you out here. Actually, I'm not referring. I'm not a preacher's kid. I, I was a project kid growing up. Project kid. <laughs> <laughs> I, was gonna say, I, yeah, I was about to say preacher's kid, too. Oh, no, no, but no. you didn't ask me. You asked Keith. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw Keith looked a bit confused when I said PK. So I wanted to make sure that he understood that. So I grew up as the PK, basically a project kid. And right there, Scott Project in Montevallo, Alabama. So shout out to Scott Projects. I don't know if I should be doing that, but nonetheless. <laughs> so that's where I grew up. But beyond that, the nurturing and, and the nature of my mom and my family. And of course, that wider village that you mentioned earlier, Ricky, is so important. You know, one of the things I learned early growing up is that the G code in my neighborhood back then was, you know, if you saw a kid who was out trying to do the right thing, trying to be successful, you left him alone and you supported. And so even if I wanted to get involved in any kind of debauchery growing up, it wasn't allowed by the OGs in the community. And I thank and appreciate them for keeping me focused and keeping me mindful of what opportunities existed for me and what kind of possibilities there were for me. So I really appreciate that whole village concept that afforded me some opportunities and kept me out of some situations that could have been detrimental to my future. So I really appreciate that. From an educational standpoint, and I'm sure we'll dive into this a little bit later, uh, and I think Keith already mentioned it, I did attend Albany State University located in Albany, Georgia, and I went there for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, when I was a lot younger, in my senior year, actually, my aunt gave me a copy of W.B. Du Bois' Souls of Black Folks. And reading chapter seven, when he talked about Albany, Georgia, and it being the Egypt of the Confederacy and some of the mindset of individuals there. And I had the opportunity to actually visit the school. So I had already signed before they knew it. So regardless of whomever else called me after that, you know, that's why I decided to matriculate academically. And of course, my choice of major was actually driven by the community I grew up in. And again, like you said, when you grow up and you see people going to jail, and of course, this is the late 80s and the early 90s when I saw the crack epidemic hitting hard. And so my goal was to go to school, to study law, to be the next Thurgood Marshall and go out and advocate and fight to make sure that you know minorities weren't adversely impacted by the judicial system. And uh, again, I, I was successful in doing a lot of things there and majoring in criminal justice and a great program. And so that's really when we talk about choice of school and what I intended to major in, those things I wanted to do were really shaped by my environment as a young person. And so that's how I set off in, in my career path. And then, of course, there are always twists and turns to what decisions are made, but that's how I set off on my path in life. I really appreciate you sharing that with us because I think about growing up in L.A. 
in that same time period. And you talk about the OGs in the community. And it was, hey, he ain't a blood. He ain't a crip. Y'all leave him alone. <laughs> you know, like, and they would make sure that you did what you were supposed to do. It's no different than if you're growing up and you got Miss Jenkins across the street and Mr. Handy down the street. They're all looking out for you. They're all trying to make sure that, you know, you ain't supposed to be over there. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to be doing this. But that village mentality, what was important. So I really appreciate you being able to share that story. But what I kind of want to like navigate into is you had talked about some of the things from the W.E.B. Du Bois chapter and whatnot. Were there some other things that were kind of settling with you in terms of making the decision to go to an HBCU versus like another institution. And then if you can, just kind of maybe take us just a one step further and decide like HBCU administration, like what would be a career path for you based off of you being able to see what you wanted to be, basically? Oh, absolutely. For me, there were a lot of factors that played into my decision. And that village, again, was a major contributor to that. I remember fondly my uncles and aunts when they would come home and during holidays, and most of them attended Alabama A&M. And they would always talk about my aunt Nancy and my grandfather, who actually supported his sister, who was Nancy, who actually supported her collegiate career by making sure that she had shoes and he would give her the money, even though he couldn't attend, my grandfather. So I think you have to speak people's name into existence. But my grandfather, Presley Gilmore, he supported his sister Nancy and going to, to Alabama A&M. And so definitely it was a rite of passage for most of my family to go to Alabama A&M. You know, after that, I had three to four aunts and uncles who attended the Hill in Normal, Alabama at Alabama A&M University. So I thought that's where my destiny would lead me. But I always tell people, you know, I wasn't smart enough to get in any colleges in Alabama. So I didn't get an offer from Alabama A&M. So I had to look elsewhere. But I knew and through those conversations about the culture and the friendships and them bringing back people home, I knew that I wanted to attend an HBCU. The other part of that was very critical in me making my decision about an HBCU is self-awareness. Don't say it in a braggadocious manner, but I think I was very self, I mean, I won't say self-conscious, but very conscious of the environment in which I grew up in and the environment in which I went to school. The school I went to was probably 80 to 90% white. And so for me, there were a lot of cultural learnings that I did not, or I had not experienced from an educational standpoint. Having Black teachers or having African-American instructors or having certain people in other roles that would help shape who I am. And so I knew I really needed that cultural acclimation and to be really get a better understanding of self. And so that was also one of the most important factors. Now, I'm going to have to keep it 100 with you. Can I keep it 100, Ricky? Now, the real reason is because, you know, in the <laughs> early, you know, late 80s, early 90s, there was a show called A Different World, right? Yeah, Whitley was all oh, yes. that back in the day. Whitley. <laughs> Whitley was all of that back in the day. I went to you to find my Whitley Gilbert, buddy. So I'm, I'm just 100 with y'all today. That's right. So, yeah. So that also played an important factor, but a lot of the lessons and conversations and shows like that were, were absolutely critical. But I'm just keeping it 100 with you. I went trying to find that. I ain't mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad. And when you ask me about the have to be an HBCU administrator and what mm -hmm. factors play into that. You know, I have a really good group of friends and some graduated from HBCUs and, and others didn't. But we always ask this question, you know, if not us, who? And when we look at those examples of those stalwarts at HBCUs, whether it be the Billy Blacks or if we go back to the Booker T's and, and the Carver and others who really 
went through some tough times and had a tough road to hoe us as far as ensuring the future of minorities and communities throughout this country, informing what we know now as HBCUs. And when I look at, you know, when we talk amongst each other about if not us, who? We all have the wherewithal and capacity to go out to corporate America and make a whole lot of money and do a whole lot of successful things and let that be the bane of our existence. But for us, you know, it's about if we don't stay and serve as examples and leaders and be a visual representation of the possibilities, then who else is going to do it? Who else is going to stay behind? And that's why I admire the work that you gentlemen do. You know, in my conversations with you, I know you guys have had some varied experiences in corporate America and other arenas. And to come back and to do this kind of work to say that we want to provide a glimpse behind the curtain, if you will, and share our experiences and be a model and an example for others. So those things, you know, it fascinates me. And it fascinated me when I was a student that there were people at those institutions who I knew were brilliant and could have worked in any national or international research lab in the world from engineering, chemistry standpoint, or whatever. And they chose to be there at those schools. And I don't think they suffered financially. People say that I would ask people to go out and look. Like you said, when you want to check the receipts, you find that there are some HBCU administrators who are paid handsomely. And so check the receipts on that. If people say, well, they don't pay well and they don't do this, check the receipts on that. And I think you'll find that HBCUs across the arena are very competitive in all aspects from an administrative standpoint, faculty pay and otherwise. And when we look from a student standpoint, even the amount of monies and scholarship allocations that we provide to students, Stillman College is a perfect example of that. You know, when you're talking about dedicated to this work, you won't find any institutional organization that allocates over 10% of their annualized budget to scholarships and support for students. We do that at Stillman because we know our students need that support. We know that not all of our students come from economic backgrounds that support their parents being able to cover their full tuition, but we make that investment in our students. So like you said, you know, and I appreciate that connotation and notion, you know, check the receipts on that. Like you said, people don't come here because they have nowhere else. We make a conscious choice. And I'm glad that people like myself and others who are doing great work around this country are making the conscious choice to stay and be administrators and to follow the career path, whether they're doing the academic side or the administrative side, but to follow that path. And again, be that giant, that set of shoulders for the generation behind us, because we need it. I totally applaud that kind of growth mindset too, and wanting to make sure you're building the next generation of leaders because it's so important. Because again, like you said, if not me, who, <laughs> who's going to do this at the end of the day? And Ricky and I, like you mentioned, just mentioned part of us doing Seekers is really to pull back the curtain a little bit and talk about our careers and things that we've learned along the way. And obviously we've experienced up and downs in our career. I'm sure you have as well. And there's always like one or two little moments as you're kind of on that journey where it could either rip you apart or it could just unleash your superpower. Could you just talk for a second or maybe about one of those two pivotal moments in your career where, you know, it made a difference one way or the other, where you really had to dig deep and say, I got to get through this, or it just unleashed something in you that you didn't even know that you had. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. Do we have that much time? <laughs> we'll take as much time as you need. <laughs> I think the one or two that really resonates with me, and as I reflect now on my career and the reason I do this work, I think the biggest one is the students. And when I talk to these young people, because again, you know, opportunities come and people 
try to recruit you to come to PWIs or people want to come and work in other nonprofits and people want you a part of their diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. And when I talk to these young people, you know, and our students on campus, especially black males, and one of the things that I know is that when we look across the academy, black males are graduating at 20 to 40 percentage points lower than females. And that's black females. And then, of course, those numbers exponentially grow when we look at other groups. So when I talk to these young men and then to have them to say to me when opportunities are basically sitting in my lap or sitting in my email, those things really help balance my universe out, if you will, by saying I am on the right path. And they can be monumental. And people, you know, when I talk to the mentors that I have and they said, hey, man, go for the money. And I rebut that and say, no, I'm, I'm here. I want to be present here. And those things really kind of shape and really give me resolve about that I'm making the right choice and that I am truly present and invested in this work. So I say overall, again, when I see young men of color across our campuses, and again, those things always shape and are those pivotal moments in me deciding who I am and what my future will be and my contributions to uh, society as a, from a larger standpoint. The other piece is when I look at HBCU leaders now, and I have the opportunity to work for a great leader. Dr. Cynthia Warwick, who serves as the seventh president of here at Stillman College. And again, when opportunities present themselves, you know, and I have a conversation with that young lady about what my future is, and she's very open about that and looking at opportunities that may increase my skill set. She also gives me great feedback. But when I see the example of how she is led by her faith on a daily basis and how that shapes the work that she does, it really puts a different foundation under who I am and what I'm about. Again, in those times of turbulence, when I question my motives, when I question my ability, when I question my dedication to this work. And, you know, those instances, they happen on a regular basis to where you have somebody who is rock steady in their faith and their actions follow their faith. It really settles me on a regular basis because we've had disruptive episodes. And over the last two years, as everybody globally, when we look at the COVID-19 pandemic and how that really shaped colleges and universities and changed our order of business over the last two to three years. And so when I look at those rocky times and saying, okay, well, I have to get everybody off campus or we have to send these young people home and we have to look at distance learning technologies and being able to provide a quality education to these young people. Sometimes those things can make you say, hey, man, I'm going to bail. It's too much. But when you're around people and you have a cadre of mentors and support around you that really keep you rooted it really quells any of those times or moments that make me question my resiliency to stay in this work. But it also empowers me, you know, to pull that cape out of the closet sometimes and say, I have to be super for these students. I have to be super for these young people in the K-12 arena. Well, I mean, look, the intentionality with how you got to the HBCU, the intentionality and the tenacity and how you continue to stand up and support like the community and just your mission. I mean, at the end of the day, brother, I mean, I just applaud you because I know we don't often get a chance to see brothers doing good work, or we don't see it in the news where brothers who doing the good work get applauded. We always look for that one thing to try to find a kink in the armor. So I just, I just need to pause for a second just to say, Keith and I, we just salute you, man. I mean, because the work that you're doing, the attitude that you have, you know, is exemplary. 
But the one thing I will say is, given that, is this is a, a good plug. I mean, I've always known it. Keith's known it. I know you have. Uh, some of our listeners, are, some, a couple of them are out there trying to figure out what they're going to do next or how do they influence their children. So why should a student or a young professional looking at graduate school consider an HBCU? And how does an HBCU prepare young adults for the world that they are entering? I mean, it's a lot of stuff going on out there. So this is the plug, man. The HBCU, give it to us, Dr. Gilmore. Oh, man, that's really a, an easy one. When I look at the body of the work that HBCUs are doing, from aviation and the great program at Elizabeth City State to the engineering and sciences and the work that's happening at Morgan State and, and Howard and you know, having medical schools in Meharry and others. There is, without question, HBCUs have the wherewithal and capacity to offer any person, and not just people of color. What most people don't understand is HBCUs have always been very diverse, not only from our student offerings, but also our faculty and the experiences of our faculty and staff and administrators. And so when we look at the diversity of programs and some of the things that are happening across this country, executive PhD and leadership programs that are head and shoulders above others at Jackson State. When we look at some of the pharmaceutical programs at FAMU and others, when we look at Stillman College, we don't offer graduate programs. Yet and still, when we look at the time period 2010 to 2020, we stand as tall as other HBCUs in the number of students who have been awarded the PhD or a terminal degree. And we don't offer a graduate program. But that gives you an idea of the basis and the foundation that we established in telling our students that they have to be lifelong learners. Now, when you go into that environment, one of the things that we find and we know, and a lot of this is just cultural, is we believe in hands-on experience, which we call now from a scientific standpoint, experiential learning opportunities. We want to make sure that our students have access to the best labs and opportunities. And sometimes those don't exist on our campus. We have partnerships and articulation agreements across this country with PWIs and international institutions. And so there's always an opportunity to make sure that our students have hands-on learning experience, whether it's in a lab or if you want to go and clerk with the U.S. Attorney's Office. There are opportunities and pathways that exist throughout HBCUs. So when we talk about our ability or capacity or what's the sales pitch, man, I'm going to be using you guys' word henceforward. Check the receipts. When you look at HBCUs in the production and where corporate America now is choosing to recruit the best and brightest, um, when we look right down the road from us in Tuskegee, Alabama, and from veterinary sciences, when we look to the north of us at Alabama A&M and the agricultural programs and agronomy and other areas that are prevalent there, across the body of all of our institutions, especially those that have graduate schools and terminal degree programs, we found that when you look across the landscape in corporate America, when you look across the landscape in education and other arenas, a perfect example and an easy example of that would be, well, you know, you look at the vice president of the United States. She is actually a Howard grad. And the numbers, and I'm only pointing her out, but there are countless others throughout this and nameless others. And I appreciate, Ricky, you saying that early, that, you know, we don't often applaud those silent and those people who are just doing the work and just keeping their head to the grindstone. And a lot of times we want the extraordinary story because it may be, it may draw media attention and it may draw headlines, but there are people who are doing brilliant work in all matters and aspects across this country in their graduate and professional and terminal studies were completed at HBCUs. And so I tell people and I ask people to 
look at those programs, look at the type of business and industry collaborations and partnerships and articulation agreements they have, and make a conscious decision about what's in it for you. Another factor to include when you look at class size, you know, when we look at would you rather be in an environment where you're one of, you know, a thousand or you have that one-on-one personal attention and that you can actually gain the skill sets you need, but you also have the ethical base. And I think that's one of the huge selling points is, you know, here at Stillman, we want to make sure that not only do our students leave to go out and be these great innovators throughout the world, but we want to make sure that they have an ethical basis to be able to be servant leaders and provide for the communities in which they work and live. And so that's the basis of who we are. And that's what we do from a school or educational standpoint in general. That's great. And it, and it was so good just to hear all of those different names of HBCUs and what they're bringing to the table, right? At the end of the day with all the programming and it's all like stuff that's going on today, aviation, the agricultural pieces around climate change and pharmacy and healthcare and just- All relevant, all, all relevant. relevant. All relevant. That's right. I'm going to give you the stage. I'm going to give you the mic one more time and blow your horn a little bit. Talk about what you're actually doing down there in Stillman. What's going on down there in Alabama? Oh, man, it's hot right now. It's hot. I'm telling you, it's hot. (laughs) That's right. And what I mean by that, you know, Stillman is actually laying claim and making known of our contributions, not only to this region, but to the world and from a higher education standpoint. In just four years, we'll be celebrating the 150th anniversary of this school. And so, The roots run deep here. And of course, we're a Presbyterian church. And so, of course, faith, we're associated with the Presbyterian church and Presbyterian Church USA. So our roots are deeply cemented with in our faith. And what that does and allows us to do is to make sure that, again, not only do our young people, again, ethically inclined to engage in the matters of this world, but also, again, that those ethical ties make sure that they're not, I mean, they're academically prepared as well. So right now, said in Tuscaloosa, we are hot. A couple of things that are happening. We have some major preservation projects going on that are going to support some very innovative approaches to education. And I'll share one with you. Winsboro Hall on campus, we have an inclination to create an intergenerational living space on campus. And the reason why that's important is we know that right now there are four generations in the workforce. And so when we look at those generations in the workforce, what we're finding, the major breakdown is communication. And so as a part of our quality enhancement program, that is what we're doing is looking at intergenerational communication. But we also want to create an atmosphere on campus and an arena on campus where those generations can intermingle, if you will, and have conversations and share what actually makes them tick, what things that are important to them, what values do they hold that are underwhelmed by any other events or crisis that may become before them. So part of that effort, and again, we've received federal support from the National Park Service and preservation grants. We have donors and contributors who are supporting to that effort to turn and make that space a reality. So we're well on our way with that. Dr. Warwick has been a stalwart and leading a lot of our efforts when we look at some of our research centers, our biomedical academy, as we look to prepare the next generation of doctors and medical students our partnerships through our social science department that are grooming and preparing students to go to law school and and law schools throughout this country, our biomedical academy, which is also, again, a great program that we're leading here at the institution. We just received, and I will give you a quick tidbit of insight. You know, we're expecting a major announcement in the very near future about some efforts to support our cybersecurity center here on campus, but major support coming in. So 
that's going to be a hot topic coming in. So I can't give you all the tea, but. But we sipping, we sipping. We didn't heard something though. I, I, I <laughs> tea, brother, but I'm telling you, you know, there are some great efforts right now to really see that the position that Stillman is in here in, this, in the Tuscaloosa community. And so we are seeing investments from not only our local community, but our state representatives, our congressional delegations, but also those federal agencies that are driven by solving not the problems of the day, but the problems of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so right now we're really excited. We've seen dramatic increases in our enrollment and our student body here on campus. So there's an environment and culture that these young people are thriving in. And I will share this with you gentlemen, since we are this year, uh, my son is a freshman here at Stillman College. So I am suffering tremendously, so I'll have to seek you, you gentlemen's uh, <laughs> advice on that. You know, as a dad, and you know, just I'm basically cyber stalking this kid. I'm, I want to call him all the time, and my wife tells me, "No, leave him alone." So he ain't unfriended you yet. So you you all right so far? He ain't unfriended you yet. So far, so far. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, so in dealing with that man, and just looking at the environment that other students on this campus create, and I'll be totally honest and share and divulge a bit. You know, my son is on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. And given that, and when I look at how these students here at Stillman have really ingratiated themselves to him and supported him and and other students, I met one other father at move-in day whose son is on the spectrum as well. And we have been able to form a network of these black fathers that have conversations about how do we deal with this? You know, we are fathers with sons who are on the spectrum. How do we deal with this? They're moving out of the house now and not being able to protect them as we want. And so things like that, you know, that also, and when we look at partnerships and collaborations right now, you know, Stillman, very unique concept. And this is a testament to Dr. Warwick's leadership. We actually have Arts and Autism, which is a local nonprofit, and I serve on their board, but they actually operate on our campus. We allow them to use physical space on our campus. We actually have House Tuscaloosa, which is a literacy program that we allow to use physical space on our campus to manage their organizations and operations. We actually have the Girl Scouts of America in their regional office on our campus. And so when, we look, when we're talking about being a campus or a community based in a campus, we are evident of that. And so, like I said, when I talk about the work and what Stillman is doing, we are really being the guidepost for and examples of what the possibilities are for other institutions of education to really bringing these organizations onto our campus that support internships and co-ops for our students and be live examples of what it is to manage an an organization and to manage a budget and to manage personnel. So really, man, we have some very interesting and innovative dynamics here on campus. And so I'm excited. We're excited about what the future for Stillman will be as we set course for the next 150 years and making sure that the work that we're doing and the history that we scribe now is really reminiscent and resonant of who we want the institution to be and how we want to our time and service here to be recalled. I love hearing the information, you know, about Stillman. Love you sharing about your son and how the university has embraced him and others like him. I just feel like that was probably unscripted, one of the best plugs we could have ever gotten. (laughs) <laughs> you know, from the university. But as I mentioned earlier, look, I was recruited by like a lot of schools to play football and to run track, you know, and Stillman shares air in Tuscaloosa with football powerhouse, the Crimson Tide, right? The Alabama Crimson Tide. 
What is your opinion? And then this may be a little controversial, but what is your opinion about how black athletes are treated predominantly by white colleges and universities? Like, are they actually preparing us as athletes for the future? I got my own opinion and I won't jump on that soapbox, but this is my opportunity just to maybe my, my, I'm not crazy moment. So Dr. Gilmore, can you tell us what your opinion is there? Your thoughts? Oh, you're absolutely not crazy. And, you know, and I will tell you from my honest, I don't know what they're doing over at the University of Alabama. Again, you know, I keep my attention focused on the student athletes that we have here at Stillman. What Mm -hmm. I will say is we know overall that less than 1.6% of collegiate athletes who play football will make it to pro. I think for the NBA, that number is around 1.2%. So given those factors, given those probabilities, of what the likelihood that you will go on to be a professional athlete, we really need to have some cleansing or clearing moments in our mind to say the probability that you will become a nuclear physicist is better. The probability that you will become an accountant is better than that. And so when I look at what's happening with the name, image, and likeness deals and really what are the impacts that it's having on the mindset of these young people about what a collegiate experience means, If they are being sold to promote a brand, whether it be UA or any of the other schools around the country, but we actually have a great relationship. Coach Saban's wife is on our board and she doesn't like to be called Coach Saban's wife. Her name is Miss Terry, but she's on our board of trustees. And so we have a great relationship with the University of Alabama and many of their students do transient efforts, takes courses here and we and our students do the same there. But particularly because I was a student athlete as well, I actually played football at Albany State University. I'll give myself a little shine now, you know, all conference performer and a team captain for several years. So don't sleep on my skills now, Rick. Don't sleep. (laughs) I'll be quite honest about that. So when we talk about student athletes overall, whether they're HBCUs or PWIs and these larger institutions, the most important thing is that they understand what the opportunities are there for them. And Again, if you have the skill set and your game is like that and you can project that as a five-star and you have the opportunity to go to one of the major schools, that's cool. But what I really appreciate now is that young people, regardless of those skill sets, because just like at Albany State and Stillman and other schools, we produce pro athletes as well. Yeah. So given that, you know, when you look at the dynamics of what Coach Prime is doing down at Jackson State and the young man, Hunter, and others who are making a conscious decision to say, I don't have to go to a power five school. I can go to an HBCU and end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. That's playing on Sundays, you know, cool. And so I'm hoping that, and I think there's a resurgence and a return because when you look at the NFL or the NBA Hall of Fame and you look at the number of HBCU players who are in the Hall of Fame and who were actually some of them introductory members to the whole concept, you might bid well and you might be better suited. Again, if you check those receipts, you yeah, better suited to you know to go here in the first place. But I don't hold against anybody what decision they make or what school they choose. But as long, especially with young men, and we're talking about football, I'm just always mindful and want them to make a choice about how this is going to really what the future possibilities for them. If it's strictly about athletics and going to the Pro Hall of Fame, hey, you know, turn up the gas and go for it. But if you truly 
know that there's an expiration date on that. I will tell you this, Keith, I know there's an expiration date because I'm walking around and my knees are cracking and ankle bones popping. And you ain't kidding. You ain't kidding. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Ben Gay and Biofreeze, they, they oh, your friends. Brother, yeah. <laughs> they your friends. I, you know, I know your podcast viewers can't see it, but you know there's a such thing as at some point in time, I don't know, some of us are lucky enough to keep their hair, but I'm not one of them. No. So, Old age catches up with us all. And, you know, and so athletics, there's a time and place for that. And whatever choice these young people make, I always want them to be mindful of is what is their future beyond that and not equate their value with their athletic talent. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, mm -hmm. it has a monetary value from a sports standpoint, but overall they have more values to their parents, to their friends, family, and their communities. And I want them to be mindful of that. And so, you know, I was always, and I'm sure you were the same way, Ricky, as a college athlete, I always reminded my coach that I was a student athlete. Yeah. I was lucky enough to be in an arena at Albany State where they didn't say you can't take this, you know, five o'clock class because you have practice. Mm -hmm. I was allowed to go to class because I know I needed that course to stay on path for graduation. And so I don't know what the others are doing, but I know HBCUs create that kind of a re environment that we support our student athletes and make sure that adequate time is given and resources are given to success in the classroom as well yeah no it's so true when i was first putting a little shine on your introduction i mentioned that you're a member of omega sci-fi and i did that for a reason so that we could circle back to it he about to try to be messy dr Gibbons. No, no, no. that's just who keith is that, that, that's who he is Ke Mr. Mr. Shane Shane Petty. yeah yeah the pnkp stands for petty you know <laughs> don't give it to him don't give it to him keith don't give it to him before i ask my question though you know ricky's an alpha just so you know ricky's an alpha so i won't call for that mistake but let's go <laughs> <laughs> who can step better that's all i want to know well, well no i think the key is who used to be able to use that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, well, that's it. Thank you. Now, both of us would have any problem trying to be in any hop show at this point in time. Oh, yeah. No, it'll be a wrap. You're talking about those knees before. It'd be a wrap. Oh, <laughs> there is no such thing. But, you know, I don't know what they taught them about stepping in Ithaca, New York. I don't know how that happens and what they teach them. <laughs> Now, I know from our roots down in, in Washington, D.C., which happens to be known as Chocolate City, there's some soul and rhythm there. So we, you know, from a stepping standpoint, and we know a little bit about that. Let me say that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know what happened in Cornell and what they were talking about up in Ithaca. It's a little cold to be outside. A little cold. A little yeah, yeah. cold to be outside. <laughs> And the Kappas in Bloomington, that Bloomington, Indiana, you know, I did my MBA at Indiana. I was like, how did the Kappas start here? <laughs> this is like clan country. How'd that happen? But anyway, <laughs> I digress. And the reason I brought that up, though, because the Divine Nine are an intricate part of the HBCU experience also. And Ricky and I talk a lot about building a village, having a network of people, and how important that is for your career and just your life having people around you that are supportive and you talked about mentorship earlier as well can you just talk a little bit about the divine nine and how our black fraternities and sororities kind of create that village and why it's important in terms of your lifelong experience oh man that's such a beautiful part and you know the exchange that ricky and i just had we know it's all love and we and that's one of the things that we have that we can do and we do all the time but we know that the impacts of all of the Divine Nine and the contributions we make to our community, not only community, but, you know, here on our campuses, when 
Those students are often engaged in our student leadership and a part of our SGA. They are often lead our community service efforts because that's part of their national and our national mandates. And so when I look at that body of work and then as an adult, and now when I look at the body of work that the Divine Nine does that, you know, it's efforts around mentoring programs and literacy programs and other national initiatives that we all carry out. I and mean, if you've been in any city where the Deltas are having a convention or the AK, brother, you've seen something magnificent. When you've seen 100,000 women show up to support their national agendas and national initiatives. If you saw what was happening in Charlotte this summer with the Omegas in Charlotte. Now, I know there were a lot of action in the street, but there are actually meetings that are conducted to really make sure that we are mindful of what our national objectives and call to actions you know, are. So the work and the support from the Divine Nine you know, across the platform, it means so much for every community and every corner that, that we touch, not only domestically, but internationally. And so we all push each other to be better and to do better and to be engaged in our community and to support young people. And if you go to any school in America, I would think at least one day a week, you're going to find a representative from the Divine Nine who is there reading books to the kids or hosting weekend events where they mentor young men and young ladies. So the work that we do in those areas around, and then even on a professional standpoint, when we look at the career readiness and mentoring around career success and advocacy, uh, you know, throughout our communities about whether it be about funding levels for in the K through 12 arena. So the Divine Nine, man, it's just, it's, it's a body of love and it's a beautiful, you know, experience that I hold dear and I appreciate the work of other organizations within the Divine Nine and the work that they do. So I'm glad that we have a relationship where we can play the dozens a bit, if you will, and have that, those areas of camaraderie. But I definitely admire the work that the Alphas do and, and Kappas and others. Now, of course, my heart lies with Omega, but I admire those men and the work that they do and the women who are part of Divina. It's just a beautiful experience. And that's something that HBCUs is very unique to us. It's very unique to our culture. It's very unique to the environment and the pace that they set on our campuses. So I would encourage all, especially young people, to make the choice best suits you. I don't think there's a, there's only one fraternity to me, but we, I won't belabor <laughs> that point, okay? <laughs> hey, but check this out, Dr. Gilbert. We appreciate the candy here, man. I got one last question for you, right? Being in the HBCU environment, and some people hear about these illustrious bands and whatnot, which HBCU has the best band? Oh, my. Keith, we have to check. Is he trying to get me fired? Now, <laughs> he just talked about me before with my question. Look at this. <laughs> there is only one answer to this question. It should be. The Pride of the South, the Blue Pride Marching Band of Stillman College. Okay. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. So as the young people say, whoever want to test that, tell them to pull up. Nah, we appreciate that so look you guys this is the part of the show where we're appreciative of the story that uh dr gilmore has been able to tell but this is a part of the story where we we let you know honestly that you're not crazy and this is where we're going to share some receipts here so today we'll share some receipts just on hbcus and i think dr gilmore was kind enough to be able to give us some facts you know already but Keith, hit us with that first receipt. Yeah, the first receipt, according to the National Center of Education Statistics, Black colleges and universities 
HBCUs are institutions that were established prior to 1964 with the principal mission of educating Black Americans. And these institutions were founded and developed in an environment of legal segregation. And by providing access to higher education, they contributed substantially to the progress of Black Americans in helping to improve their lifestyle and their status. And currently, there are 101 HBCUs located in 19 states, the District of Columbia, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And of those 101 HBCUs, 52 are public institutions and 49 are private nonprofit institutions, with a total of about 280,000 students enrolled in HBCUs. And here's an interesting stat that non-Black students make up about 24% of the total student population. So even though it's historically Black colleges, it's not all Black. So one point that I'll point out with that receipt, Keith, there is in corporate, we hear all the time, we can't find qualified people or they're just not there in terms of finding ethnically diverse people. There's 101 HBCUs out there and an applicant pool of almost 300,000 students. I mean, we're not even talking about alumni, okay? We're talking about students. That's kind of like a what the hell moment. Like, let's stop making excuses, you know, therefore. Right. Right. Look, receipt number two, according to the social mobility report of HBCU alumni by the United Negro College Fund, they constitute only 3% of higher education institutions in the country. HBCUs educate 10% of all Black college students. These institutions account for 19% of degrees earned by Black students in STEM, you know, fields alone. Additionally, HBCUs account for 80% of Black judges, 50% of Black doctors, and 50% of Black lawyers. As a general note, an HBCU graduate working full-time throughout their career can expect to earn $927,000 $927,000 in additional income as opposed to non-college goers and Black students at nine HBCUs. Now, that's a receipt for you. That's, a receipt. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So there, there's this perception that, you know, you can go to HBCU, but you ain't going to earn no money. You're not going to have no career. But that's just not true. And to build on that same social mobility report, it reported that HBCUs actually serve more economically disenfranchised students than most U.S. institutions, while also facilitating upward mobility of the majority of their students. So on average and across all institution types, when it comes to mobility rates, HBCUs outperform all other categories and boast mobility rates that are more than double the national average. And additionally, it's worth emphasizing that the evidence suggests that HBCUs support nearly five times more students than Ivy plus ranked institutions in facilitating students' movement from the bottom 40% and household income to the top 60%. So HBCUs are moving the needle and doing it better than Ivy League schools and other predominantly white institutions when you look at the categories. And this receipt shows that as a high school guidance counselor, it's almost a crime not to have this information when trying to influence Black students or other people of color to attend HBCUs. It's almost a crime not to have these readily available to you. Look, the final receipt here, receipt number four, because I think I'm starting to get fired up over here, Keith. Receipt number four here, in the research report, HBCUs punching above their weight, a state-level analysis of, of historically Black college and university enrollment and graduation, it shows that in their most important function, 
Enrolling in graduating college students, HBCUs perform far better than their small size and lack of resources would lead one to expect. So again, regardless of the stature, the small size enrollment, they're performing at a higher rate. So let's look at Dr. Gilmore's home state of Alabama as an example. There are nine HBCUs in the state of Alabama alone. HBCUs comprise 27% of the four-year institutions in the state, enroll 40% of all Black undergraduates at public and private four-year institutions, and award 37% of all bachelor's degrees earned by Black students. Moreover, Alabama's nine HBCUs generate $1.5 billion in total economic impact and create more than 15,000 jobs for their local and regional economy. Yeah. I mean, we could drop the mic on them, on them receipts. Cha-ching. That's yeah. right. So again, when they think that Dr. Gilmore was exaggerating or putting an extra zero on it or this, that, and the other, he was actually being pretty humble with what he was saying. So again, these are the receipts. These are the facts. You can't dispute what it is. Yep. Did you have something to say you are going to say, uh, Derek? No, I was just going to say, I'll just put it in a simple way for you. You know, sometimes... As Moneybag Yo say, you know, the hate be real, but the love be fake. And that's what we feel at HBCUs. You know, the, the, the hate is real, but yeah. the receipts tell the story. And so, you know, for those who speak of our demise, let them know that it's untimely. Because we, again, are great contributors to the educational and philosophical framework in every arena in this country. And we'll continue to do that work, even with less resources in some cases. But when we look at the product and the receipts and what we do, and you talked about one of the most important things you talked about was social mobility ranking. When we look at how much our students come in and what their parents earn over their lifetime and on an annual basis, and what we can do immediately after these young people graduate to double and triple the earnings from where, on the average, of what their parents make. When we talk about social mobility and moving the needle from poverty to you know working class to middle class and to you know, other arenas, we do that work on a daily basis. So I appreciate that, sir, with the receipts. That's awesome. I appreciate you, gentlemen. Yeah, no doubt. So this is the part of the show where, again, we've talked about the journey to corporate America and to the heights you know, of where we get to. We've talked about the receipts. And, and a lot of times people may think that we're complaining or we're just really trying to put effort on it. Look, if the stuff didn't exist, we wouldn't have secrets. But what we want to be able to do right now is provide you all with some secrets on how to create impact and sustain change. So Keith, talk to us about it. Yeah, yeah. We'll close out today with a double dose from Dr. Gilmore. He'll first provide uh, three secrets on how, you know, if you're interested in applying to an HBCU or you're, you're interested in supporting an HBCU student, how to do that. And then he'll give three secrets on how corporate America can better support our HBCU students and graduates. So, so Derek, what advice would you give to the young person sitting out there thinking about applying to an HBCU or someone who's looking to support an HBCU student? What are three things you tell them? I think the, the most important thing is just to simply apply, to reach out to us and all of us at Stillman. You can find us at www.stillman.edu. And I think you'll find that the, the website is easy to navigate and you can find the support that you need to apply. But the secret and one of the things that we want to share, especially from a private liberal arts institution like Stillman, is one of the avenues that we want you to apply for and participate. And I think, Ricky, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, is the UNCF. When we look at the financial support, so go to the UNCF and apply for their scholarships that are 
available to students and available to the member institutions and who are part of the UNCF, the private schools. For those who are public, please apply through the Thurgood Marshall Scholarship Fund and have those scholarships applied to those public HBCUs that are part of Thurgood Marshall. But I think that's one of the biggest secrets that there are monies and funds that are available to our students, not only at the institutional level, but through you know our umbrella organizations like UNCF and of course the Thurgood Marshall Scholarship Fund. Nah, that's some great advice, man. I mean, and it's like, I'm sitting here just thinking like, just us being able to articulate this and give this to the masses is probably a lot more than me, you and Keith had. <laughs> we were kind of coming up, you know? So it's like, we're giving you the secret. We're just imploring you to use it, whether it be you listening to it, use it as listeners, or you have family members or relatives. Like there is a way for you to be able to get in there and do this. But the last thing that I would like maybe to ask you in terms of a secret is, what can companies do to support HBCU students and graduates? The biggest thing they can do is be and continue to be the friends that they have been for years. You know, philanthropy and engagement of corporate entities and organizations have always been a part of the work that we do here at HBCUs. And so for those, and we know that there are a body of new startups and everything from energy conservation to ecosystems and ecology and other areas around technology. So we just have call us. And we actively have individuals within our academic departments and our administrative units who are actively in, in seeking partners who want to look at and solve the future's problem by actively engaging in research. And you'll see the efforts of HBCUs if you look at the National Science Foundation's rankings of HBCUs when we look at the research expenditures, you'll see a precipitous climb in the amount of research expenditures that HBCUs are seeing. And that's because of corporate partnerships and engagements. Not only federal aid dollars are being invested, but you'll see corporate engagement in that as well. And so with those companies and organizations, we want you to actively seek out those collaborations because again, we are mindful and that we present an opportunity for those companies to support not only the overall outcomes that they have as an organization, but also to support their diversity and inclusion efforts and part of their mission. And we can be a partner and a collaborator in all of those things. So we just want them to continue what they've been doing. And when we look at scales of economy, of course, I don't want your $1,903. You know, we need this $2,023. So we want them to actively engage. And of course, according to scale and time to make those investments that we know will net outcomes that support not only that individual organization, but also the benefit society as a whole. Yeah, those are some uh, great gems. And I think Ricky definitely pointed out a big secret earlier for corporate America is to get out to these campuses and hire some of our people. Stop making excuses about the talents not there because you're doing cutting cutting edge stuff, right? <laughs> cutting edge stuff. So Derek, you dropped some gems today. And um, I know that for our young people out there, this is real gold. And this will be preserved for a long time and that they can listen to. You can make sure that your students listen to this podcast because you are bringing some some heat. I'm sure they hear from you live every day. But I think they've got much already, so they probably don't want to hear another word. <laughs> they may not want to hear from you, but 
you know, <laughs> be all right. But also, hopefully, our listeners out there was enlightening for you as well, and especially those in leadership roles and looking to hire some talent that you really understand what HBC is all about and what it can bring to the table. And Secret Village, we told y'all we ain't playing in season five. We just keep bringing you more and more heat. And Dr. Gilmore, we really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And again, I look forward to engaging with you gentlemen and your continued support of and the work that you do to support, again, young people and growing them responsibly in a professional manner. So hats off to you gentlemen. And I really appreciate the invitation. You know, I always want to make sure that I meet up to the caliper of the host and you gentlemen are stellar. And so, you know, I had to check myself to make sure that I'm, you know, that I, I rise to the occasion to be in the, in the same company with Ricky and, uh, and this alpha man over here. But <laughs> <laughs> Hey, well, look, brother, you, we are just really humbled, you know, that you were able to come on, man, and just to really just enlighten us. And where the thing I want to really say before we end the show is we welcome you with open arms to the Secrets Village. And again, we're going to do all we can to just keep this momentum going. And we want to make sure that we continue to have brothers like you be showcased in the spotlight so that people can be able to see what they want to be, that they can know no matter what tracks you you come from, that there is hope, you know, out there because we all have similar tracks, but now we're all aligned and on code trying to make a difference, you know, here. So we appreciate, you know, everything that you do. And, and I, what I'll say to the Secrets Village is you can find more resources on the secrets and the receipts that we shared today by going to our website, secrets.com and looking in the show notes for this uh, episode as well. Mm-hmm. And secrets listeners, again, today we brought more logs for the fire. <laughs> so <laughs> we go keep this bad boy hot. And all of y'all out there, our listeners, we really appreciate you because you continue to help us grow. And if you want to continue to help us really blow it out, just help us out by, again, by writing a review on Apple, Spotify, joining our LinkedIn group commenting on our posts on your favorite social media channels all of that stuff helps us and it can help you too to kind of get your name out there so people start to see you as a thought leader yeah no look and we really appreciate all of the uh interaction that we have i mean we just posted something i think it was a few days ago and we had over 3500 people looking at that the village is growing so we want y'all to keep doing it and again show your support by just getting some of that merchandise i'm sporting one of those hot fire t-shirts right now not just because it's hot fire in the neighborhood right now but like it really is one of my favorite t-shirts to wear so go in get something again you already know kp and i are locked in to being able to help impact this generational wealth thing right we want to be able to help you get your coin get your seat at the table so we are tipping the scales at well over $4 million in total compensation increases that we've been able to help, you know, our Secrets Village, you know, since we've been starting with Secrets here. So again, hit us up for some personal coaching services or training for your organization or provide a referral if you like what we're doing. Again, we want to help you get that money. Absolutely. And we want to thank Derek once again for being with us today. And I still don't think we settled on which frat can step better. Right. Hey, well, but, well, look, that, the the Ben Gay, like we said, the Ben Gay and the Bio Freeze is your friend. So we're going to talk a real good game. We're going to talk a real good game. But when it comes to actually getting out there and stepping, I'm going to coach somebody else on what to do. Retirees. <laughs> so I agree with you, Rick. That's a no. So you're speaking to two retirees on that subject. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. 
That's right. And the best band, you know, I know you had to do your thing, Dr. Gilmore, and, you know, be loyal to your school. So we'll we'll come back to that conversation off camera. <laughs> <laughs> but what I will say is that everyone should put going to an HBCU football game on their list of things to do because it is an experience. And I'm going to give you this little secret. If the band can't play an Earth, Wind, and Fire song, they ain't no good. <laughs> They just need to sit down. Just sit down and shut up. Because yeah. if the horns can't blast and do that earth, wind, and fire thing, it's a wrap. <laughs> and the crowd gonna let you know. Or a Notorious Big song. If they can't do earth, wind, and fire, or a Notorious B.I.G. song, we got some problems. That's right. And speaking of stepping, I'm gonna step back over here to the bar and refill this empty cup so that we can create some more hot fire for y'all. So until next time, everyone, thanks for listening in The Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Peace. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Secrets. In fact, one listener said that with Secrets, I learned new, actionable information listening to KP and PR. I enjoy the balance of data with the testimony of real experience, and we hope you agree. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please show these brothers some love. Subscribe and write a review on our podcast. And last but certainly not least, elevate your professional game by signing up for our executive coaching services. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Remember, when we share, you transform. Until next time, cheers.